Welcome to the Joel Beasley Tech and Science Podcast. I was meeting with the team. They showed me this video. And apparently it was living robots made of frog cells that were reproducing and running around. It looked like they were eating some stuff up. What is that? So this is some work that we've been doing in collaboration with Josh Bongard's lab at the University of Vermont. And uh, the idea behind it, so, so these are xenobots. Uh, the idea is uh, to use uh, cells extracted from various uh, tissues. In this case, this was frog skin. Uh, to use them as a robotics platform for two, basically two reasons. One, to, uh, to make useful synthetic living machines that are going to do interesting and, and helpful things. And also to learn more about where biological goals come from. So why is it that these standard cells with no genetic editing can do new things, can make new types of bodies, new behaviors, and so on? And the, uh, the amazing thing is they, they weren't eating those cells that you saw. They were kind of in a in a field of, uh, of, of loose skin cells, they weren't eating them. They were corralling them and pushing them into little piles because those piles make new xenobots. Those piles become new xenobots. So this was basically kinematic self-replication. It's kind of like von Neumann's dream of a machine that goes around, collects a bunch of parts, and out of those parts makes a copy of itself. It was actually a kind of, of replication. That's insane. That's crazy. So you can see, yeah. so when I'm looking at that video, um, the, the the xenobots are the clusters, right? Yeah. So so the big the big uh, kind of uh, light brown piles roll ro- the, the big light brown um, uh, structures that are moving around. Those are the xenobots, and the that that stuff that looks like sand that they're moving around. Those are little tiny cells. And so what they'll do is, and this is a very short clip, but what they'll do is, it, but both singularly and as a group, they will corral like little bulldozers they will corral those cells into little piles and overnight those little piles will further self-assemble into the next generation of xenobots which guess what will then do the exact same thing repeating the cycle again so simply putting these things into piles creates a xenobot they're not doing anything to the to the material Right. So, so, so here's the, here's the interesting thing. And one, one of the interesting things about this whole technology is that it really stretches our definitions of, of, of robotics, of engineering and so on. Traditional engineering worked with passive materials. So when you work with wood or metal or something like that, it's on you to make it do everything that you want the machine to do. So the engineer does everything, the material does very little. It's basically just structural. And then we sort of, a little bit after that, we had some, some computational materials that you can count on to do with you know, computations and so on. This is, the next, this is the next level of that. This is an agential material. These cells have agendas on their own, meaning that if, if they are outside of uh, the instructive influences of other cells in the body, so if they're left to their own devices, and they're pushed together into a particular density in a particular environment, they are able to form this xenobot. The the material knows how to do that. So this is engineering using two strategies. One is subtractive, meaning that we didn't add anything to these cells. We didn't give them new genes, new nanomaterials. We didn't do any of that. What we did was subtract constraints. What are the constraints? The constraints are within their normal context in an embryo. If you ask, well, what do skin cells want to do? The, you, the typical answer is, well, obviously they want to make a, this, this boring two-dimensional sort of cell layer on the outside of the organism that's going to keep out the, the, the pathogens. Well, that isn't what they normally want to do. That's what they're sort of bullied into doing by the other cells, right? These are instructive interactions that keep cells doing this. In the absence of all of that, you see what they actually want to do. What they actually want to do is get together and make these uh, self-moti little proto-organisms. So, so, that's the, so the first principle is, is engineering by subtracting constraints. And the second principle is taking advantage of the competency of your material, right? So all of this works. It works for us to make it, and it works for the xenobots to make it because the cells will take over. Once you put them in little these, these little piles, they take over and they do what they do best. And that actually, that actually has massive implications for regenerative medicine, and we can talk about that. Um, we've, we've used that kind of principle to uh, you know, regrow legs and form eyes and various other things by taking advantage of the competencies of the cells and not trying to micromanage it. So you've actually done that? You've done the regeneration of limbs? Sure. In, in, in a frog model, we have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we, have, we, have, uh, we have several papers showing that um, you can induce regeneration of legs in an animal that, in an adult that normally does not regenerate legs by 
interfering with the uh, signaling of the cells after wounding for 24 hours, that leads to a year and a half of leg growth. So during those, those first 24 hours, that collection of cells at the wound is going to decide what they should do. And you have the ability to intervene in that decision and push them one way or the other, not micro specify how to make a leg, not tell them what to make, but just literally push them and say, um, not scarring and not nothing, but actually make whatever normal organ goes here. And that's it. And then, and you don't touch them again for a year and a half and they grow a full and they grow a leg. Yeah. <laughs> You're really expanding my mind right now. And I talk to technology people that do crazy things all day, but this is like yeah. exceptionally interesting. Um, how did have you connect have you had thoughts about this and how it relates to consciousness in general uh very much so yeah um this is so so my lab um works at the intersection of developmental biology computer science and cognitive science and the reason i i i weave those three disciplines together is because i think that all of this is fundamentally a, an example of, of collective intelligence and problem solving. So cells getting together to build one thing versus another thing is the navigation of a cellular collective intelligence through a kind of problem space. It happens to be anatomical morphous space. So meaning the shape of the space of possible configurations of a hand, a head, an eye, you know, whatever it's going to be. So, so to me, uh, this is, this is all part of, um, when, when somebody asks what, you know, what kind of science I do, I, I still think of myself as a computer scientist. I think that what we're studying is computation just happens to be in a living medium, but, but that doesn't, that, that doesn't matter. What matters is we, we really want to understand how, uh, these very competent subunits, including cells and molecular networks and so on, scale up towards very large goals. In other words, build a limb or regenerate a limb if it's damaged or keep maintaining a limb or, you know, th those kinds of things. And, uh, there are some amazing examples of very intelligent navigation of that space, meaning it doesn't just, you know, we're, we're sort of used to normal embryonic development. You start with a with a frog egg and you get a frog, you start with a fish egg, you get a fish, and you get this idea that, well, it's a hardwired process that just sort of rolls forward st each step, you know, and forces the next step and so on. That's really not how it is. It's a very dynamic um, process that can make up for all sorts of uh, interventions. You can make the cells bigger, larger. You can add cells, remove cells. Heck, in the human, you can cut the early embryo in half and you get two perfectly good monozygotic twins. Why is that? Because every each half embryo rebuilds the other half, right? So all of these things are, you know, this is, this is incredibly a uh, plastic um, uh, activity that meets William James's definition of intelligence, which was the ability to get to the same goal by different means. So this has absolutely, I mean, I don't have, I don't say too much about consciousness per se, but I say a lot about cognition in the idea that uh, what, you, what you're looking at is, is a collective intelligence solving problems in a space that you're not used to looking at, right? We're used to looking three at three-dimensional space and animals solving problems in 3D space by moving around, right? You see, you know, monkeys, dogs, octopus, whatever is going to do these things. But, but actually, there are all kinds of intelligences in physiological space, in, tr in gene transcription space, in anatomical morphous space. So this is, this is very much tied to, this, this problem is very much tied to cognition. Have you been able to identify the um, method of communication they use? So, yeah, so, so, so they use, they probably use many, uh, and, and there are many more, I'm sure, that remain to be, to be discovered. But the one that we really work on is bioelectricity. So, so all cells, not just your neurons, but all cells communicate electrically. I mean, if you th think about, uh, the, we are also collective intelligences, right? So people often say, well, th this uh, termite mound, maybe that's a collective intelligence, right? Or this flock of birds or something is a collective intelligence, but I am a centralized, you know, true intelligence. No, there's no sharp distinction there because you, you and I are also bags of neurons. And these individual cells still have to cooperate together in a very particular way to give rise to this singular, a large-scale intelligence that's going to have memories, goals, preferences that don't belong to any of the individual pieces, but belong to the whole. That scaling problem is just as important for us as it is for, for you know, uh, termites and ants and so on. And so, so you might ask, okay, how do brains solve this problem, right? Brains solve it by, by bioelectricity. So, so neurons connect electrically and they make these networks that process information in a way that gives rise to behavior and sentience and everything else. It turns out that um, perhaps, it, it, you know, looking at it backwards, maybe not so surprising, is that brains didn't invent this trick. So, so, so how did brains learn to do this? Well, they exploited a system that was here long before even neurons appeared. 
So back around the time of bacterial biofilms, evolution discovered that electrical networks are a super convenient way to process information. They're very good for integrating in the computations, for storing memories, for decision-making circuits, for homeostatic circuits, and so on. And it's been evolution's been exploiting that ever since. So all of the decisions of uh, developmental biology, remodeling, um, cancer suppression, um, uh, uh, maintaining and, and repairing organisms and regeneration, all of those things to involve a lot of bioelectrical signaling. They also involve, of course, chemical signaling, biomechanics, you know, ultra-weak photons. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, physics that goes into it. But the bioelectrics is kind of special because just like in the brain, it's, it's the medium of the cognitive activity, right? If you want to know how do you read out the information in the brain, you, the, the commitment of neuroscience nowadays is that, well, you need to track the electrical activity and decode it. So the same is actually, um, the same is true for the rest of the body. If you want to know how cells know what to make, Part of that answer is it's in the electrical uh, network that they form with each other. It's those pattern memories in that electrical network. Do you think they have some sort of like encryption to the host in the sense that like my cells are going to know to work for what I am versus like someone else sitting next to me? Um, yeah, there's two, uh, there's, there's kind of, well, there's, there's several senses of, of encryption here. On the one hand, it's very likely, although we still don't really understand this very well, but it's very likely that there is a degree of encryption going on because such a powerful system is really a great target for parasites, for various evolutionary cheaters, for different ways for other animals to exploit you, bacteria, and so on. And in fact, we've published that the number of heads that a planarian flatworm is going to grow is partially dependent on what the microbiome says. So the microbiome actually has input into that process. Right. So so that so so clearly there's some sort of arms race whereby these these various microbes are learning to hijack some of those native control principles. Right. This bioelectrical network. So I'm sure the host probably is fighting back, making those making it you know possible, but but not not too easy to to control itself using those tools. So I'm sure I'm sure there's some kind of a evolutionary um, arms race there. Uh, with respect to you know you and and your neighbor, I mean the reality is cells are incredibly interoperable. So you can make chimeras, you can make chimeras across multiple species. So in our lab, one of the things we make is a frogolotl. So partly frog, partly axolotl. Those embryos work together just fine. The cells work together just fine. So and in fact, people you know people instrumentize with inorganic electrodes and weird materials, right? Uh, you know, all all kinds of nanomaterials and all kinds of stuff. Cells cells um, are just will work with whatever they have. So um, you know that that signaling may allow them to know whether they're sitting next to something that doesn't belong there, but but they will certainly get along with it if they can. This is some pretty intense stuff, man. This is <laughs> wow, wow. Yeah. And, and you've been studying this for how long? Well, that depends when you start counting. I mean, I've been thinking about these things since I was a kid. Uh, I was always interested in these kinds of questions of mind and, and embodiment and uh, uh, control and, uh, and computation and so on. Uh, I did computer science first and I was a programmer and I got a degree in computer science and then biology and I got a PhD in biology. And I started my own independent group in 2000. Um, but, but I've been working on this stuff, you know, one way or another for many, many years. That, that is so cool. Uh, I'm very glad that <clears throat> we've got smart people like you out there, like changing the world. Um, the gray goose scenario from like sci-fi, basically self-replicating bacteria turns us all into like this giant gray goo thing. Uh, how do we like make sure that doesn't happen? That's a great uh, question. I mean, to be clear, the gray goose scenario is more for um, for nanorobotics. Uh, it's not so much for the biological stuff that I deal with. So I'm no, I'm in no way an expert on that. I can just, you know, sort of thinking about it generically. I'm not sure there's any way to make sure of anything. In other words you know, how do we make sure we don't blow up the planet with nuclear weapons? I don't know how you make sure of that. I'm not sure there's a way to make absolutely sure of that. Um, there are ways to, you know, sort of uh, try to work towards a better, a better future. Uh, just with even, even in the absence of Grey Goo, how do we make sure that we don't wipe ourselves out with some sort of, you know, crazy uh, uh, new virus or new bacteria that somebody creates somewhere? I'm not sure. How, I don't know how you make sure of that. I think there are bad actors that will do it, on, that will try to do it on purpose. I think it's actually not not 
that hard, I think. And so that's a very dangerous thing, uh, much more dangerous than, than, than let's say, true, you know, conventional uh, weapons or, or even nuclear weapons. Um, I, I don't know how you make sure of that because all of these things are progressively easier and easier for people to play with. In other words, it's not, you know, it's not just, okay, there's, you know, one central lab somewhere and those are the only people that can do this. All of this kind of stuff becomes easier and easier to, to access. So, so I don't know. I think, uh, I, I don't, I certainly don't have a solution to it, but, but I think that we have to be clear that making rules against it is okay, but it doesn't go terribly far because the people that are really interested in wrecking things are not interested in these rules. They're just, they're not paying attention to these rules. Right. So, so, so I'm not sure. I think, I think I'll, I'll tell you what I think we absolutely need to have. Uh, the answer, the answer to this is, is, is more science, not less science, because oftentimes people will say, well, this sounds, this sounds scary and I'd like to avoid these things happening. So let's not investigate them. And I think that's exactly the wrong approach because, because somebody's going to do this anyway. And even, uh, naturally, right. As, as we see, there are natural, uh, plagues and, and, uh, you know, all kinds of natural uh, disasters that are going to come along. If we do not, uh, have, have a scientific understanding of where these complex systems come from, how they evolve, what they're going to want to do, whether they be social structures or financial structures or Internet of Things or swarm robotics. You know, we really need a mature science of the scaling of basal cognition. You know, how do these things scale into larger systems and what do these larger systems want to do? You know, uh, we, we need a science of this. That's, a, that's an existential level um, need for, for humanity. What's the name of that science? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, people—I I don't know that it exists yet, really. People have people have called it um, complexity theory. People have called it uh, emergence. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it has a great name yet. I think. I think it's just. It's basically this is a this is a really emerging new field where people have known for a really long time that lots of simple little subunits performing simple local uh, rules can give rise to something very complex. Okay, that's been known for a really long time. A really simple example of that that most people recognize is a fractal, right? You have this beautiful, I mean, you've seen them, this, this, this incredibly beautiful image. That whole image is squeezed out of a little tiny formula that's usually like, like just, you know, just maybe 10, 12 characters long, right? All of that complexity in this tiny formula because the formula just tells you a simple rule. You iterate that rule and you get this incredibly complex thing. So people have known about emergent complexity for a long time. We all know that if you um, complicated systems are difficult to predict. But there's actually way more than this going on, which is the actual scale of cognition, meaning that not only are these systems going to have behaviors that are hard to predict, but they're going to have goals and they're going to have novel ways of reaching those goals. And, and, and that's a much more powerful uh, level of, of, of activity. And we do not know where collective goals come from, right? Look at um, just as a simple example, uh, you know, Xenobots, right? So there's never, been, there's never been any Xenobots before. So you can't say that the reason Xenobots have these features is because of evolution or selection to be a good Xenobot. There's never been selection to be a good Xenobot. So why was, where does this come from, right? I mean, clearly it's, they're, they're exploiting, um, some sort of, uh, you know, laws of physics, computation and other, and mathematics to, to do this, but we are terrible at predicting these things. We don't know how to predict these goals, how to, um, even, even recognize goal directed systems. Oftentimes people have this binary view where they'll say, well, this, these, these things have true goals and true cognitions. And usually they mean humans, maybe some great apes, you know, maybe some octopus, and they all sort of argue with each other about where it ends. And then there's all this stuff, which is just physics, it doesn't have any of that. So I think I think that's a fundamental mistake is trying to say that there's some kind of binary separation. I think that there is a massive continuum of very unconventional agents that have goals and solve problems in spaces that we're just not used to um, observing. And if we don't come to grips with that and develop this science, uh, we're going to have very major problems. I want to go back to the communication between the cells. What type of communication did you say that you could pick up on? So this is this is bioelectrical signaling. It's basically just like what's going on in the brain, but slower. And it's not it's not specifically related to neurons. Now, are you able to sort of like, you know, isolate the Xenobot and the material and track communication between the cells? Like, can you, or is that too granular of what we can do today? No, we can do that. And and we, we haven't specifically done that with Xenobots yet. We've done it with all sorts of other 
we've done it with with uh, in embryonic development. We've done it in limb regeneration. We've done it in spinal cord regeneration, eye development, face development, um, cancer. We've done it in, in context of tumorigenesis. Yeah, you can track. So, so, so we developed the first tools to do two things. Uh, track those bioelectrical conversations that the cells are having with each other and rewrite those conversations, basically uh, ed- edit them on the fly to put in new information to change what the collective is going to do. It's a little bit like um, in neuroscience, they have these, these programs for uh, research programs for neural decoding. So can we read the mm-hmm. electrical activity in your brain and see what you're thinking about, what your memories are, and so on? And then and then inception of false memories. So for example, there are researchers that can take mice. Um, there's a group at MIT that did this where you can take mice and you can use light to optogenetics to uh, write specific electrical states into their brain to give them memories for, of experiences they never actually had. So, right? I mean, that should be, which, which, which you know, sounds kind of wild, but it should absolutely be possible if you believe that the electrical activity of your brain stores your memories, then of course you ought to be able to write new ones that way. So we've done exactly that, but, but not instead of, instead of the brain, we do it in the rest of the body to say, okay, you're a flatworm and your default electrical circuit says you need to have one head, but we can go ahead and ma- manipulate that information and tell the, these groups of cells that uh, now you can have uh, that now now a proper worm should have two heads instead of one. And so when that worm is injured and it goes to regenerate, guess what it does? It makes two heads. So we've done that. We've we've made various other organs. Um, anyway, yeah. So I, I want to share with you a quick story, and you can tell me if it's true or not. Okay. So my dad uh, was in the Air Force. They put the GPS system into the stealth bomber, so he had like top secret type clearance. Um, and he was always interested in that, being an electrical engineer and a software developer. And um, so he was always interested in like the coolest things happening. And I remember when I was um, uh, pretty young, I was probably you know early '90s, and he was i think we watched something on like a show or a tape or something he had and the experiment that they were running i can't remember if it was fiction or nonfiction, um, but the experiment that they were running was they were isolating saliva cells and they're and then they would take them out of the you know the person would spit they'd some do run it through a centrifuge or something and then they would have like some electrical monitoring on them and then they would tell the person to leave the room or like, you know, go home, we're done, we've taken your sample. And then someone would jump out and scare them and they could pick up on the electrical signal actually happening in the vial of the cells that had already been removed from the person. True or is that, was that something that you think is true or is that too far Uh, from reality? You know, uh, I've I've heard about those kind of studies. I've never done them myself. Uh, All I can say is that currently we don't have any known a mechanism that would support that. I'm not saying it's impossible. I think um, saying that uh, things are impossible is a really good way to, uh, you know, turn out to be uh, l- limited in imagination 20 years later. So I'm not going to say that it's impossible, but we don't have any way of knowing that. We, we don't have any theory right now that would predict that that would happen. Let's put it that way. So um, that's something that, you know, if that, if that were true, it would be highly significant. Uh, you know, somebody should be researching it, uh, publishing it and so on. I haven't, I haven't seen it, but, but I'm, you know, I'm not going to say it's impossible. So like, let's, let's talk about um, wounds, right? You, you had mentioned that um, you could track these conversations that they're having, sort of record them and then manipulate them um, to change the instruction, which is great. And for background, like I was, software engineer for 17 years and then this podcast got popular so i haven't been writing code like the past three years but spent a large part of my life doing it so i i I like the analogies that you're using i like that you're calling these robots machines because it it helps you take all the machine knowledge you have and and apply it over yeah um so i I really like that but um uh i kind of forgot what i was going to say oh yeah what's the distance with these wounds right so like you, you have the cut and then you have the, you know, all the cells are, are right there. You're bleeding. There are cells all over you. Um, what's like, is there a distance that they're effective? Like if you take one of those cells about three millimeters away, is it no longer connected to you? Or how does that work? Yeah, distance, if you mean distance through the air, meaning, you know, physically disconnect them, then as far as we know, that's it. They're not connected. Again, there could be, all, you know, there's this data on ultra weak photons and who knows what else, right? So I'm not, I'm not going to say it's impossible, but uh, with known bioelectrical communication, yeah, once, once, you're, uh, once you're physically disconnected, that's it. 
However, uh, you can also talk about distance through the tissue. In other words, in your body, what do tissues know about each other across distance? So, so if you have a, a, a wound or a damage or a, an incipient tumor or something else going on, what other cells know about it? And so in our work, I, I don't know how this will play out in a human because we haven't done this on that, it on that scale. But in the frog model, if uh, I'll tell you two pieces of information. One is that um, if you inject an oncogene on one side of the animal and uh, whether or not that thing makes a tumor, it has to do with the electrical conversations between those cells and their neighbors. You can affect that process by manipulating bioelectric states all the way on the other side of the animal. So it does not have to be local. You don't have to target the tumor cells themselves. The bioelectrics propagates across the whole animal. Now that's in the in the you know in the tadpole. That's not really that much distance. So so I can't really say that it's going to go more than a couple centimeters, but it might be way bigger than that. We just don't know. In uh in the in the frog leg in the frog legs, if you have a froglet and you amputate one of the legs, the other leg that you never touched has a bioelectric signal that kicks on within thirty seconds at the exact same place where the other leg got amputated. So it knows, the untouched leg knows where the other damage was. Not only does it know where, you can tell what kind of damage it was, basically a puncture wound or an amputation based on tracking the bioelectrics in the other leg. So, you know, how far does that... This is stuff you can do today. We've already done already Without done genetically well, we'll, modifying the frog. Correct. That's what that, and, and to be clear, it's not anything that we do. It's the frog does it. Right, we haven't done anything. We we've just we've just discovered the fact that the tissue in the frog already knows what's going on, right? So that opens the door for some interesting things like surrogate site diagnostics and who knows what you can tell about other tissues from looking at a particular location in the body. Again, it has to be done in humans to figure out what the actual length limit is. Maybe it is just a few centimeters, but in the but 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 what we see in our in in these frog models is that information spreads very far. And again, shouldn't be terribly shocking in the sense that that's what bioelectric necros are for, right? They're for integrating information across spatial distances. They're really good at that. I want, <laughs> dude, this is fun. It is really cool to get to talk to people like you. I, I really am interested now in somebody writing more about the science of like the collection of things, because I find some of the things interesting will be, thoughts that I just randomly have, like walking around in life, thoughts that I've randomly had. And then somehow like later feeling like they're sort of connected to areas that are already being researched. And I'm like, well, what, what like prompted that is, was it simply just a likelihood of me consuming other information? Um, or, you know, is there some sort of field of consciousness as you make these discoveries, um, like locally in a frog that it can do these things and, we know, you know, in a fractal nature, it's like, you know, turtles all the way down, right? Like there's uh, the ants and then we're just a collection. It's like, what are the humans building? Like what's the goals of the humans and what are they doing and all of that? Um, have, have you, do you, do you think that this, your discoveries and as you progress for your time here on earth, do you think everything that's happened has led you to believe that the world's more magical or less magical in the sense that like there's, more undiscovered things or what are your thoughts there if that made any sense yeah well i hear i hear two questions there uh at the end i think you're asking you know uh in terms of what percentage of the reality do i feel that modern science has got a good grasp on right like how much right is is sort of sort of this idea of how how much is there to discover versus do we really pretty much just already have it nailed down yeah i I, that 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 i can answer and and i will say that my own feeling is that we know almost nothing i think that this this idea that we have that um you know we got these textbooks and things seem to be under under pretty good control i think we are just at the beginning i think there are such profound areas of ignorance in many in many many areas that are really important. That uh, we are going to be, um, you know, this is this is nowhere near the end of this journey. This is we're we're much closer to the beginning than we are to the end. I feel that, and that's that's clearly not. I mean, people write these books, you know, the end of science and things like that, where they kind of feel like, hey, you know, we got the ba- we got the basic bones of everything, and yeah, there's some, you know, some some details to put on things, but we kind of understand how the world works. I, I don't think that's true at all, uh, and so so I can say that. Um, with the first part of your question about the magic, well, it depends how you define magic. Um, if you define magic as some sort of 
capricious breakdown of the world order. No, I don't see any evidence of that at all. I don't, I don't feel that at all. However, to me, what's what, where, where the magic lies, I see, I see things that I think are magical every day and they're not magical because they somehow break down logic or science or they can't be explained or any of that. I think, I think all, none of that stuff is useful. I think what's, what's incredible, what, what is absolutely magical is the way that it is, it's, it's many things. It's, 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 first of all, the, the, the fact that our, the, the causal structure of our mind in some way matches that of the universe so that we can make heads and tails of it. I mean, that, that to me is the first, the, the most basic yes. first piece yeah. of magic right there, right? That, that we can even, that we can even begin to make heads and tails of what's going on. And the amazing, the, the, you, you know, it's, it's, um, there's, there's something magical going on because you, when, when you find out certain things, they lead you to unearth other things that you didn't know about before, right? So these are not invented, they're discovered. So whether they be theorems of mathematics or, um, you know, other things, you, you, you start off, you start off with something and before you know it, it pulls you and towards, towards finding something else. So it isn't that you just sort of came up with something that was expedient for you at the moment. There is a there is some sort of a, a grand design behind it that is actually once you start pulling on the threads, each thread leads to some other thread that you didn't know was there, and so the interconnectedness or or, or consilience of these things, uh, as as uh, some people uh, call it, I think I think that's that's magical. I think uh, the fact that we can make progress using using these rules of of logic, the fact that to what I also think is magical is the fact that. It, it, to me, intelligence—not not in a mystical sense, but in a in the you know sort of cybernetic problem-solving sense—seems to be baked into the universe all the way down, long, far below cells and things like that. And that that to me is magical—the fact that we know what it's like to be a giant collection of of cells. What's it like to be a swarm of cells? Well, you tell me because you're we are you know you and you and I—that's what we are. And so the fact that the fact that you can actually arrange matter in a particular way to make cells that solve problems and then arrange those cells in a way that you have the centralized and you know kind of intelligence that has a first person perspective that has that has, has you know, preferences and goals and and so on the fact that that's even possible in the in, in the physical universe that's magical to me and it's not not that you know not in the sense that it can't be explained or anything like that i think every time we explain something and we get better insight into it the magic goes up for me, it doesn't go down. I, you know, I don't. So some people kind of feel that scientists, science, like squeezes the magic out of things. I think it's the exact opposite. I see more magic every day. As, the more I understand what's going on and what you know, the, my colleagues and other people uh, discover things, the, the magic rises. You know. Oh yes, I think we have similar uh, views of the word magic. Right? It's like the feeling that you get that it's like awe. Um, yeah. You mentioned something else, like so. As you make these discoveries, like more things seem possible, and and um, it gets it gets exciting. And you you know, you said something. You said that a lot of people will think it's like sucking the fun out of it, right? Well, another thing that I've come across a lot is I feel like a lot of people think that people that are in science like don't believe in God, right? And I know I'm using God very loose term. It's highly subjective when I use that word, but I'm just gonna say the thing that is right like at the lowest level like i i think it could be like a variety of things right but i we see this organization happening and it seems to be more than just chemical reactions and so i'm just curious like when i see science making progress i think it's almost like the act of like discovering god and and i'm using god as a placeholder for like the thing that created this universe right it's like our our origins and to me, that's really exciting because uh, I think there's a lot of there's well, obviously there's a lot of mystery to life, but uh, it and I just thought it was kind of funny how a lot of people will look at science as a reason to excuse God away, and I'm sitting there thinking like there it's quite the opposite. They're trying to figure out creation, and through that understanding how we fit into this container and what this container is and how it was created. Yeah, um, I think that I think that it it really depends on obviously uh, your view of of what you mean when you say God, right? So 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 if people some people mean by this an intelligence that's above the level of humans with 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 whom you can have a personal conversation, you can ask for favors, you can ask forgiveness, you can you know, whatever it's going to be, right? I, I I don't I don't see science providing any evidence for that level of of activity. 
However, uh, look, looked at a different way, all science begins with an act of faith. It has to at the bottom, at the bedrock is a, is a very basic piece of is a very basic belief that you, you have to take on faith if you're going to do science. That is uh, the fact that the world is understandable and it's out there for you to to rationally um, uh, un- uncover because there isn't any actual reason for that to necessarily be the case. I mean, how, how would you know that that's the case? It's, a, it's, a, it's an unprovable assumption. You cannot do, if you don't believe that, you cannot do science. Science is, is uh, only done by people who, are, who firmly believe that the world operates according to understandable principles. And by the way, this weird uh, sort of, um, you know, monkey-like uh, uh, ancestor uh, happens to have a cognitive system that's going to be able to understand it. That's a, that's a lot of stuff to take on faith, right? That, but, 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 but let's be clear, you know, so scientists often will say, you know, I, I'm not into faith, I'm into experiment. That, that's great, but, but all of it rests on that one fundamental assumption. And I think it was. I'm trying to remember who specifically it was. It might have been. It might have been Boltzmann, or it might be older than that. But but he basically pointed out that let's let's imagine for a second that there was no there were no laws in the universe whatsoever, right? There were no laws of physics. There was no. It's 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 just pure randomness. No rhyme or reason to anything. If that's the case, and it's and it's and it lasts an infinite amount of time, then guaranteed, mathematically guaranteed, there will be pockets of time during which things are happening that just happen to look like they're lawful, right? The way that if you keep tossing a coin, eventually you're going to have, you know, a run of, of 20 heads. And if you look at, if you just look at that run, you might say, well, I see the rule here. The rule is always heads. That's the rule. And what you don't realize is that there's just a little pocket of order in this incredibly random stream, right? Where you tossed it, you know, billions of times. So, 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 so uh, whoever it was, probably Boltzmann was arguing that we can't really detect if you look around and you see, things going according to the laws of physics for some amount of time, you actually don't know that that's what the universe is doing. It could just be a random pocket of order in in an infinite series of completely random happenings. So in order to do science, and and if if that were true, you can't do science because because like those 20 um, heads in a row, they could end at any point. There there is no law. There's no law keeping it that way. So, So at any point, you might get to the end of the sequence and then, whoop, that's it, it's gone. So in order to actually do science, you have to have an act of faith. You have to believe that we are not in a bubble, existing in a bubble of, um, uh, of, of, of uh, events that look like they're lawful, that, that, that the universe actually has laws. Because you're going to put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into uh, trying to figure those laws out as a scientist. So all of that starts with an act of faith. And I think this is what... Um, yeah, I'm no expert on this, but, but I think this is what, what people like, like Einstein and, and, and many other folks like that uh, when they said that they had some, you know, sort of deist uh, sensibilities, I think this is what it is. It's it's this it's this faith that of that everything else is based on that the world is rationally understandable, and, and it's quite a leap actually because it, it didn't it doesn't have to be that way. Yes, yeah, and I, I just I think it would be pretty cool if one day, like we we started to get some answers to questions like, you know, I won't have talked to a person in a long time, and then randomly they'll pop into my head and later that afternoon they call me it's like what are like you know things things that happen like that um or you know people have dreams about things that'll happen to them the next day like there's there's things that happen that i don't believe are like completely out of the realm of of possibility um but i think as we learn i think one of the keys for a while and i didn't know this before this interview that you studied this this communication between cells in this way because one of the things I've thought for a while is like if you could study this and understand how they're communicating, you would have a better understanding of of what's going what's going on in the universe around us, right? Yeah. Um, look, I think I think we have to be humble about the fact that I I, I like I said I, I do not believe that we have a great. Uh, handle on some of the really fundamental things that are important about our reality. Having said all that, I, I will just say that the current understanding of how things work doesn't really give you know it doesn't really support or or explain the things that you're that you were talking about. So currently, oh, I, I don't believe yeah. right. Currently, we don't have a framework for that. But I think we really have to be humble about um, you know how how much have we really figured out about what's going on. And I think I think there are major gaps you know and major knowledge gaps where we may be surprised about some of these things yeah i see it as opportunity and i i try to be really objective with things as objective as you can be like my intention is that but you know we're humans 
because I'm I'm interested in answers. I'm not interested necessarily. I'm kind of like rogue. I'm not like on a specific team. I'm more interested in like the truth of it, right? Like let's figure out uh, what's going on. And to be completely honest with you, I'm kind of surprised that <laughs> it's not like a bigger thing happening in life, right? Like it's. I mean, if you look at the money that we spend on science versus other things, it's relatively, you know, it's it's not the most important thing if you look at our budget as humanity. Yeah. 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 I'm sorry. Well, uh, off yeah. topic <laughs> a little bit. Um, I do have a good question, though. Um, because you can measure this, these signals, and because all of these electro things are happening uh, sort of like unconsciously, for lack of a better term, uh, within our cells, um, have you come up with uh, figuring out what percentage of the electro signaling is conscious versus unconscious in our bodies? Well, um, I mean, conscious is an interesting question. Uh, you could ask that of chemical signaling. So the vast majority of the chemical reactions that go on in your body are not accessible to your conscious waking self. Some of it may be recoverable under altered states, let's say hypnosis or something. Maybe maybe you would be able to give answers about, uh, you know, um, I don't know, things that you can't, uh, aspects of your body physiology that you don't normally feel. I, I don't know. But the vast majority of it is certainly certainly not conscious. I mean, it's it's funny. If I were to if I were to say to you, yes, you know, with my conscious intention, I can change the voltage of thirty percent of my body cells, and you might say that's a crazy claim, right? And then I would say, well, uh, every time you lift your arm, you are consciously, if you if you're laying there in bed and you say, I'm going to lift my arm, and you lift up your arm, what what is that? That's that's uh, your conscious intent, whatever that is, and there's no good consensus on what that even is, but whatever that is, your conscious intent has changed the electrical potential in your muscle cells that allows them to do the work of lifting your arm. So all of us, all day long, as we go about our lives, are using our conscious will to alter the electrical state of your muscle cells. Can you, you, can you do that to other types of cells that are not muscle cells? I'm not sure. Some people I've, I've heard, I've actually been contacted from, from my Twitter feed where I talk about some of, the, some of these, uh, you know, some of the science. So people have actually contacted me. Apparently, there are people that can make um, the hair on their arms stand on end consciously right? Uh, so it's some percentage of humans apparently can do that. I never heard of that before, but it's possible. So what, what else, you know, uh, by sort of in your standard configuration or with biofeedback training with some other kind of practices that people might be able to do, you know, I know that, uh, you know, people who do yoga and whatnot can learn to control all kinds of other things. So I, the, the vast majority of it is unconscious, but the jury's still out on what can be brought under conscious control if you work at it. You know, there are all oh, kinds yeah. of environments, there, right? Yeah, like uh, I can move my ears up and down, which a lot of people can't do. <laughs> <laughs> that's nice. And I can, can you see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Can you do that? I cannot do that. Nope. See? And it's like, I didn't even try. I just, people notice when I smile, they're like, oh, when you smile, your ears always go up. That's how I can tell if you're like fake smiling or real yeah. smiling. It's like my wife would tell me that. And I was like, oh, really? And wow. then like flaring nostrils. So there, I think, you know, some things like we just, for whatever reason, when we're be becoming ourselves, like through the cellular creation, right? Like as it's happening, uh, we get like, you know, access to certain things and um, we're all just like a little bit different. And there's enough of us that a lot of us have some things in common that we can do. Yeah. And the question is too, I mean, a lot of it is incredibly plastic and reprogrammable, uh, there's an old experiment in rats where if you measure the temperature of, rat, of a rat's ears and you reward it for the temperature differential, then rats can generate up to like a five degree Celsius difference between the left and the right ear because it's learned <laughs> that by doing that, it gets a reward, right? So, so, so we can learn to do that. That's one more behavior that it can learn to do. And so, and so humans with biofeedback can, right, can do that kind of stuff too. Uh, you know, I've seen all sorts of things where, where people can learn to do these kinds of things. So, the question is, you know, plasticity. Have you ever, um, another example is, have you ever seen the rubber hand illusion? Have you ever oh, yeah. Seen that? Yeah. So, right. So, so it's an amazing thing where, you know, you do this thing where they put this rubber, rubber hand in front of you and they sort of pat it while they're patting your other hand and then they take out a hammer and they, you know, go to whack it. You, you, you kind of jump. Your, your body, uh, the, 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 the structure of your body having four limbs has been nailed down by evolution for how many millions of years? 
and and yet 20 minutes visual experience is enough to completely override that and make you believe that you've got five five limbs right that it overrides that that 20 minutes of, of just watching somebody you know uh, touch that that rubber arm uh, overrides this this default expectation that's been set in the tetrapod body plan that's been set for millions of years so so that's you know the plasticity is, is incredible and so that's why you know there are all these uh, prosthetics and we're going to have all kinds of cyborgs and and, and everything else because the, the plasticity is just massive yes yeah. i want to quickly touch on commercialization um is your lab have desire to get these xenobots out and or to use this technology of limb regeneration for first aid type things and humans ultimately or how are you going to ultimately make money yeah, well, uh, right. Ma- making money, uh, you know, uh, I, I think, I think uh, for, for, sh- for sure we have, um, uh, it's, it's a really important goal of mine to have this stuff out to relieve human suffering, me- medical, medical issues. So birth defects. So, so the important thing is that all the stuff that we study, including uh, xenobots and all the bioelectrics and everything else, cancer, birth defects, traumatic injury, aging, degenerative disease, all of these things have one thing in common, which is how do collections of cells decide what they're going to build? If we had the answer to that question, we could we could basically solve all medical needs except for maybe infectious disease. Everything else rides on the simple question of how do you convince cells to build one thing, not another? And so I, I'm, I'm extremely motivated to... Uh, push this stuff to the point where it can help actual you know humans and and veterinary um, medicine and so on uh we're doing that by by rolling out a couple of different spin-off companies from the lab so so we have one that's called fauna systems and this is um joe um josh bongard and myself are uh the co-founders and that's all about uh, xenobots and the idea of learning using the xenobots as a discovery platform to learn how to program collections of cells so that they can do things either out in the in the environment or in the body or in fact uh, never mind the xenobots but to use those same principles to get your body cells to regrow whatever it is that you need as as you if you lose it or if you age or if you have a tumor or whatever so so there's one company that's that's fauna systems uh there's another company called uh, morphoceuticals inc which uh, myself and David Kaplan um, at Tuft, also from Tufts, are the um, uh, co-founders. And that one is all around uh, bioelectric medicine and regeneration. So we are trying to achieve limb regeneration in, in mammals now. And ideally, you know, someday, uh, someday it'll be useful for human patients. And then we have, we have another um, company that's uh, kind of about to start in the, in the area of bioelectric cancer reprogramming. So all of these things, you know, we do we do try to push these things out. Hopefully, I mean, I have no experience in you know in in in, in industry or business or anything like that, but I, I I work with people who do, and so hopefully this will get out and help uh, help real people. Yeah, I like it because in my business experience, I really like platform business model models, mm-hmm. which is kind of what you described, how you pushed it out, and people can learn from it. And if you have that platform, um, and then there's commercialization around it, then you can improve the platform continuously and just constantly make something better. And then people can just build on top of it just becomes like a giant app store, you know? Exactly. Exactly. That's, that's what I'm looking for. The goal is not to make one, one or a set of drugs. The goal is to make a discovery engine that helps, uh, that, that fuses, uh, machine learning and biological intelligence to, uh, have this like, like a cycle, a discovery cycle of new ways to, uh, to, to control biological outcomes. Yeah, you guys can do cancer. I'm gonna do fat cells. I'm gonna create like a cell that like eats other fat cells, but like only eighty percent or however much fat you need, right? That way you don't get the gray goose scenario with you. All of a sudden, all your fat's gone and you're dying. <laughs> yeah, 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 um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, all right. Well, this man, this is great. Uh, one, one last question. Uh, how long? This is just guess. This is like a fun, a fun for context, everybody. This is fun. This is not investor updates or anything like that. How long do you think, if you were just to guesstimate the marketplace, would there be a scenario where I get my arm cut off, the ambulance comes, and they have some sort of uh, device, chemical, communication, something that would tell my arm to regrow instead of stop growing? All right. Uh, I'm, I'm glad you started out by pointing out that it's fun. Uh, I, I will. All, people ask me that all the time. Like when? I mean, I get email. I get unbelievable emails from people every every day. You know, who have lost their limbs and, and 
Oh, oh, uh-huh. it's 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 heartbreaking. It's absolutely heartbreaking. Well, I get I get I get two kinds of emails. I get emails from young, healthy people saying this is scary. You should stop your work. And then I get emails from from people whose kids are sick or they're sick or they've been, you know they they have some kind of damage, and they say, "What's taking you so long? Like, hurry up!" And um, and they want to know when. So so I can tell you, uh, I, I I I I'd be lying if I could give you any kind of a sh- like a realistic estimate because I have no idea. I have no idea what the market's going to be like. I have no idea um, what the funding is going to be like. How the science is going to go. I, I will tell you that you know, in the spirit of uh, sort of my own personal guess, uh, I, I expect to see it in my lifetime. I'm 52 now, so I expect to. You're 52. Yeah. What sort of drugs yeah. are you taking, dude? <laughs> You got good genetics, buddy. Yeah, yeah maybe. I mean, I'm not taking. I'm not taking anything. I, I, in fact, I get emails all the time as well asking me what, I, what, what kind of drugs, and then suggesting drugs that I should be taking. All kinds of neurotropics oh, of and stuff. But yeah, I, which, I typically get most of my medical information from random people emailing me too. That's how. <laughs> that's how I do my diet and my health and yeah. my kids too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I figured. I figured. I figured that would be the case. Um, so right. So no, I don't. I don't take anything. Pretty much. Um, I, I expect I, I hope to see it in my lifetime. I think I think that's not I think that's not crazy. I think that uh, there will be major advances uh, soon and there will be some engineering problems to solve to just to scale it up for, for large size uh, of, of human arms and stuff like that. But I totally think it's doable. I think it's doable. Yeah. Does your dad look young, too? Um, I don't know if he looks young. He's super active. The guy, the guy's 76. He plays soccer, uh, you know, twice a week. He walks three miles a day. He teaches uh, computer science classes. Um, like he's, you know, super active. Okay. My dad looks really young and I look super young. That's why I grew the beard. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it was always like looking far younger than I am. And I hated it. Like up to my mid twenties. And right when I hit 30, I was like, I kind of like this. This isn't so bad, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So um, it's cool how life is like that. Anything else we want to get out there to the world? Um, Any other cool things you're doing or topics we didn't touch on? Uh, there's there's a ton of stuff i can just recommend um uh, go to uh drmike11.org that's the website and all the papers are there a lot of presentations talks that i've given ted talk i have a ted talk that's there that's linked to there um icdo.org which is the um uh, the institute for computer designed organisms which josh bongard and i uh, are, uh, are, are leading. And then, uh, yeah, more pharmaceuticals, you know, just go to the, go to the website and you can, you can see all this stuff. There's, there's tons of, tons of stuff. Amazing. And last, I just want to signal my support for, you mentioned earlier, something along the lines of the answer is more science. Um, and I fully agree with that. We should have more science. And then for the people who want to do it properly, we've got guidelines and sets of rules for how they can do it in the safest way known. Right. Um, and, and yeah, so I just, uh, I feel pretty passionate about that because I'm definitely not the person to retract because of fear. Um, and I think that that holds us up uh, more often than not, you know? Yep. So yep. I, I like totally that you're pushing agree. for, well, basically that's a big thank you, Michael. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a big thank Thank you for pushing this, this study forward and, and for doing this. And uh, I, I really uh, admire the work that you're doing. Thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for the conversation. Thanks for having me on.